Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan Francesco. I'm the deputy editor of Cellside Technology and WatersTechnology.com. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Anthony Malikian, the U.S. editor of Waters Technology. Hello, everybody. Anthony and I are, you know, we're feeling it after a long, long day at the uh, North American Trading Architecture Summit and that followed by the Cellside Technology Awards. But Got to give the people what they want. We know they want the podcast, so uh, we were told many times that they wanted a podcast at the uh, at the event. So yeah. we're becoming famous in our very very small community. Shout out to all the listeners that came up and uh, talked to us and chatted with us for a bit. Uh, you know, really appreciate that. Always appreciate you hearing your feedback, both good and bad. So thanks for that. But uh, Anthony and I are going to plug away and push forward on this dreary Thursday day. And, uh, you know, really, the topics are built in. We just had a conference, so it makes sense for us to talk about the conference. Uh, So no point dancing around it. We'll jump right in. And jumping right in, we'll talk about the first presentation, the keynote. It was by Jim Adams, Global Market CTO at Deutsche Bank. Now, I've been at Waters two and a half years. I've seen my fair share of Waters conferences. And this is not to speak ill or poorly of the other keynote speakers, but this was very impressive, which doesn't say anything against the other ones, kind of really just as high as the bar was, this one really set it even higher. Yeah, Jim did a very good job. Also, you know, relatively short notice, we had um, somebody else that was going to do the keynotes um, scheduled for a while. Uh, That person had to back out and uh, Jim filled in and with a plum. And for those that weren't there, um, about 18 minutes into his speech, the uh, alarms started going off on the seventh floor of the Marriott Marquis. We were on the seventh floor of the Marriott Marquis in Midtown, New York. And uh, so we kind of had to go up on stage. All right, everybody stay seated for a minute. Let's see what's going on. And for those of you that aren't aware, we say Midtown, New York. Literally, it is in Times Square. And not like just outside. You know, you say Midtown, that could be. It is literally, you look out the windows of the bar and you can see kind of, you know, picturesque Times Square. It's the heart of New York. And so, you know, the alarms are going off, the lights are flashing the whole nine yards. Then, um, you know, they come on, they say everything's fine. And then, like, so he starts speaking again. Two minutes later, another person will come on, everything's fine. Okay, cool, everything's fine. Another two minutes, come on, everything's fine. We're like, okay, we get it, man. Like, is everything fine or is everything not fine? You just need to tell us once it's fine, you know? What's Um, the code word to let us know things are all right? Is there a gun pointed at your head? Yeah. Yeah. So Jim uh, did a very good job with that. And uh, so his presentation uh, looked at... uh, We didn't even mention what he talked about. Yeah, he's just really good, but... Yeah. Um, Open source and the need for collaboration in the industry. Um, There's an article up uh, that it's uh, fairly long, about 1,100 words. um, So it gets into great detail. We'll just touch on some of the key points of it here. But just how he asked the audience, so a couple hundred people, you know, maybe about 150 people in the audience. I'm not 100% sure. You know, who uses open source in their uh, organization? You know, we have vendors in there. We have banks, hedge funds, asset managers. Yeah. and about 75% of those that responded, uh, we use uh, uh, this platform called Slido, where on your phone you can answer the questions right from your seat. So about 75% said that they do use it. And then the next question, how many of you actually uh, organizations contribute back into the open source community? And 75% said that they did not uh, contribute back into the uh, open source community. And then he said, how many of you have had projects that have started within 
um, your organization, open source projects that you started uh, the community for, and like 10% maybe said that they did. Um, so it's just clear to say that in finance, open source is a one-way street, which I think is something that you've written about in the past. Right. So uh, actually, exactly a year ago, April 2016, I wrote a feature on open source, kind of looking at the various things. And the, the one of the more interesting issues I found and what I touched on in my story was essentially exactly what Jim, exactly what you're talking about, that banks are more than happy to take open source for a couple of different reasons. A, it's free, right? B, it's it's uh, it's it's a great way to innovate because you have a community. Also, kind of Jim didn't talk about it, but it is true. It's a great recruiting tool, right? You yeah. have young kids, young developers love using open well, source. Actually, uh, there was a no. Jim did talk about that. Uh, he said, and this was, I thought this was one of the better quotes uh, from from the thing. He said, uh, "We need to embrace becoming contributors to these open source foundations. Uh, just taking is fundamentally against the open source community's ethos." Uh, so what you may ask, well, it does, this is him speaking. Well, it does matter if you wish to attract and retra- retain the level of engineer who's able to innovate, you've got to be operating under modern software practices. You have to be able to attract and retain the type of people that want to operate that way. And we always hear about, um, oh, well, we want to be competitive, getting the developers from Silicon Valley, from Google, Facebook, and stuff like that. Well, GitHub put out a report, um, looking at 2016, who was using um, the, who was contributing into the open source community. And so um, uh, Adams had said that, uh, fa- uh, what was it? Uh, Microsoft Facebook was number Microsoft. one contributor in 2016. Facebook was number two. Google was number five. Well, question, do you know, I don't know if he referenced it. Is that pure? Just on GitHub. Okay, but is that pure what they've downloaded or percentage of their, because that's the other thing, like, Okay, they downloaded a bunch, but they're a massive. Microsoft's a massive corporation. Well, no, it's how much they've contributed. So this isn't just to take. This is the how much have they right, contributed. Right, right. But what I'm saying is, they can contribute two percent, and two percent of what they contribute is ninety nine point nine percent of a lot of companies. So whereas a lot of other companies might contribute, you know, fifty percent or or do way, you know, yeah. the percentage of their contribution. What he's saying here is they're that. still up there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, we're splitting hairs now. Yeah. No. Deutsche Bank is a huge organization. No, These no, no, banks no. are I, huge organizations. Yeah. And what he's saying is you're saying that you want to be attracting these developers and start stealing them from these companies. Well, guess what? These companies are contributing. Sure. sure. So if you guys, you know, the, the 20% of you that are actually, you know, the 80% of you that aren't contributing in this room here, well, you say that you want smart developers and stuff like that. Well, you're not showing it because, you know, what he says operating under modern software practices. This is what young developers expect, is to be able to use open source, to contribute to the open source community, to not have to go through the bells and whistles that um, that banking does. And you know, Jim was very quick to point out, say, listen, there's proprietary stuff and stuff that makes us money and capital, sure. makes us unique, absolutely. That stuff, we're gonna keep in house and we're gonna take whatever we have to do. Um, but this is just general stuff, you know, and for banks not even to be given back, they wanna take some open source tools to create, you know, some basic, you know, general workaround workflow, and then they don't want to go back in. And then basically what you're doing is you're taking away the cost savings because now to do the patches, to do the fixes to these uh, tools that you've created using open source, well, now you're just throwing more mu- uh, pe- manpower right. at it and resources right. at it. You're What's hamstringing it. You have yeah. a Corvette and you're driving it around your neighborhood. Yeah. You know, you're not getting the full use out of it. I will say having spoken to folks, uh, you know, tech folks 
for the story. And I posed this question to, well, I'll get to the question I posed to Jim, but I will say I do see, I guess, the, the flip side of it. You know, I'm not to say, listen, there's definitely a portion of it that just banks are greedy and this is easy for them to just take and they're not willing to contribute back because it's a pain for them. Yeah. But there also is that level of compliance and the legal issues that they kind of need to get over. And I understand Microsoft's a big company as well. Sure, a little bit more compliance and regulations on, in the financial sector than maybe just yeah. the tech sector yeah. in general. What I think, you know, and I asked Jim this question and I know I mentioned in my story, Goldman did this with the Clips Foundation, I believe, is kind of setting up these foundations, and I know Symphony runs one as well, where big banks can donate their code, their software to the foundation, and then in turn, the foundation takes on the responsibility and don't contributes that into open source. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that seems to be a bridge, and Jim seemed to think that's the route that the industry's gonna go. Yeah, it's it not seemed gonna, like he was on board with that. Yeah, too. he seemed, it's not gonna be, I don't think, at least in the near future, I don't think we're gonna see Deutsche Bank contributing to a Python project or something on open source. That's not going to happen at least in the near term it's going to be deutsch there's going to be that counterparty that in between intermediary that accepts it takes on the liability and then moves forward and if that's what we need to to get banks contributing then i think that's a step in the right direction just you know so you've worked on this story and again what jim goes up there and he says he's very smart he spent 15 i think it was like 15 years at goldman sachs right um, and then he was at Oracle before that. He's got 25 some odd years of experience. So this guy knows his stuff in this realm. And so I understand I can appreciate his opinions and what he knows has to happen. Mm -hmm. and he's right. That just has to happen. Mm -hmm. Talking with people. Do you see that happen? Do you see there being a sea change in the specifically in the banking community where that would happen? Yes. And well, I think the tech folks, the C-level guys want that because they understand it brings, they understand this is the way software is going. This is the way, you know, uh, this is the way we need to go to bring people. I think the problem is the compliance officers. Well, even the business. So think about it. You know, obviously the tech folks, he's right about track talent, stuff like that. The business front end users. So this whole conversation of business involvement, tech involvement, whatever the hell you know, you want to have that conversation. Those guys, a lot of those guys, those departments, the CFOs, the COs, stuff like that, they're not going to understand what the ethos is of the open source community. They're going to care about what is best for my institution. And on a short-term basis, you would think that what's best is to take and not have to give too much. True. I think that, and I don't I, know I, how you're going to change that mindset. Maybe well, I'm wrong. No, no, no. I think the, the things you need to make clear is your point about patching. You were, we're missing out on a huge valuable part of the open source community by not contributing back yeah. that we can kind of and evolving and making the product better because right. there's so much transparency of these right. developers all contributing to the product and also making it clear and i think as the years have gone on and we've talked about this in, in depth that the business folks are getting more and more tech savvy and have a better understanding of making it clear listen the proprietary stuff our our source code the stuff that differentiates us from bank xyz that's not going to be a part of this this is, like you said, the kind of the general stuff that kind of a rise in tides. It'll help everybody. Yeah. Um, I think I think they'll see that. I don't, you know, everybody talks about how cutthroat the banking industry is. Well, we just want to help ourselves and not anybody else. I still think, though, they'll recognize that in the long term, it's not worth it to cut off your nose to spite your face. You know, I don't just take one more Sergey Leonikov case, you know, Goldman <laughs> Sachs with their clips. You know, it's fantastic and wonderful, but. You still I mean, have those cases. That and exist. that's why I think the compliance and the legal folks are the biggest ones they're putting their foot down because it's just going to be a pain in the ass for them. It's just yeah. a lot more work and a lot more concern of them to kind of, like you said, worry about the, uh, you know, those type of folks. But uh, speaking of concerns about folks in, in your space and trying to get into your space, mm -hmm. the uh, C-level panel 
always one of my favorite panels because you just get a bunch of really smart men and women up there that are the highest you know level in the industry just talking about what they're worried about what they're concerned so uh the uh the speakers were david kelly of pine river capital mike mcgovern of brown brothers harriman uh uday shankar of bny wealth management and david saul of state street so a wide range you know chief information officers and one chief scientist right so Saul being the chief scientist a good range of people with you know a lot of experience and knowledge in the space buy side and sell side uh one thing that stood out to me and you know maybe i'm just being naive but you know and asking them what are the their priorities for uh you know 2017 and 2018 first thing that came up first or second time for all four of them uh was cybersecurity. so you know Cybersecurity was something big when I started in 2014 that we heard a lot about. It felt like in the past, in recent years, I haven't seen many press releases about it. You see news stories about breaches and stuff, but hasn't been kind of touted or talked about as much. Still very much a concern of the C-level folks. I guess, you know, obvious, but still I thought I found it interesting. Yeah, I guess the conversation's evolving uh, to, to, to extend beyond the, the C-level panel. Um, I was moderating a panel looking at uh, cloud uh, technologies and specifically around the use of uh, public clouds, mm-hmm. you know, AWS, Azure, uh, GCP, stuff like that. Um, and th- there was even a mix on that panel um, of guys that were deep in the infrastructure and architecture side of the business. These, so these weren't the CIOs. These were the guys, the nitty-gritties the, yeah. of building the cloud and on maintaining, the ground. developing on the ground. it. Yeah. Um, creating the connections, architecting between uh, their different platforms. And there was even a, a difference of opinion there, um, specifically, um, hold on, I'm going to be writing a story about this when I get the time, you know, just trying to decompress from the event. But um, it was uh, uh, Larry Verdi, uh, who's at TD Bank, and Alex Foose uh, from AXA Financial. And Alex was very much like, no, your, your database that you have your hard uh, database that you have um, in your institution, that's your security risk. These clouds that Microsoft has, they are throwing a ton of manpower at their security. They have great biometrics, they have great security uh, things. They're much safer than, your information is much safer in there than it is gonna be in your own uh, infrastructure. And Larry didn't seem, I'm gonna have to listen again, but he did seem to quite agree with that and they kind of had a little bit of back and forth, friendly of course, uh, respectful. But, um, and I thought that was just kind of interesting to, to hear that even on a panel of these experts here, that cyber concern is, is very worrisome. And I think that the debate seems to be moving more past, there's this inevitable feeling that you're gonna be screwed by a hacker. You know, that, that's just, there's always, you're always gonna be under attack. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that in your article. Um, Whereas that now a lot of it is just, okay, who has, uh, you know, who has control over it? Who has uh, transparency into these things? We're losing some of that. And when, when we're signing our contracts, the way we go about signing our SLAs has to change and evolve. And I guess a little bit of that was seen with the, the cat and why. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah. Why uh, the FINRA lost. So, yeah. Third party yeah. risk management, fourth party risk management. Um, you know, a big kind of debate, not a big debate, but a kind of Michael McGovern, kind of spoke about the importance of encryption. Got to have your data encrypted. Like yep. encryption, da- encrypt your data, you know, and that's the, the safest bet and then kind of manage credential management, you know, take care of credential management. And kind of David Saul, who, you know, obviously clearly knows his stuff as well, said, you know, while encryption is important, at the end of the day, we're not, we can't encrypt in transit. He said, that's just, 
you know, he's, he mentioned that a university was working on it, but we're still years out of that. You know, you, you encrypt, you know, when it's in place and you encrypt when it lands, but, you know, in between, you're not going to be able to encrypt that data. And that's when the hackers are going to go after it. You know, any state, nation state, he said, is sophisticated enough, can get through your firewalls. And then it's just a matter of them finding that, da that data in transit. So it's a matter of, you know, managing who can see what and kind of having the credentials around that and, and understanding, like you said, you know, your SLAs, your third and fourth party risks. So, um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's something that we know is always on the mind of C-level folks, uh, but it was interesting to kind of hear it brought up again in, you know, such a fervor and, uh, and uh, interest. Yeah, it's just going to be, there's the grand macro debate over how to just, I'm worried about these hackers and stuff like that. God, there's a great article in wired magazine um the hunt uh for russia's most notorious hacker mm -hmm. and uh, how they work to bring him to justice a great great story uh that existed there but so there's those stories are going to exist that's always going to be out there it's always going to be a concern i think that the cool thing about this is on the cyber debate is it seems like the conversation is getting more intelligent it's getting more down in nuts and bolts Whereas that maybe when we had these conferences a couple of years ago, it was very much about, okay, we need to protect our data. We need, but okay, now we're going to start getting the specifics. And here are some specific third-party uh, providers that you know offer these things that you should consider. I think that we're getting a little bit more into that realm, and that's good for the industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. Lastly, uh, you know, and, and again, there's going to be a lot more coverage on NATAS as a whole. You'll see a bunch of articles written about it, you know, over the course of this week and the next week. But uh, just kind of just quickly, just touching on a few topics. The last one, uh, you know, there was an AI machine learning a panel, but really that was kind of a, we saw that throughout the entire day, yeah. you know, um, a lot of talk, you know, the way I compared it was, whereas maybe a year ago, a year and a half ago, it seemed like blockchain was all everybody wanted to talk about. That has seems to have died down and, and swelled down and really now, Everyone is excited to talk about AI and machine learning, and not just, you know, the good of AI and machine learning, but also the bad, right? Yeah. No, and I, so at this event, I spoke with, just in private conversation, I won't mention names, but uh, very senior, you know, CIOs, CTOs from very, very large, both buy-side and sell-side institutions. So at these events, you know, I've been doing this for eight years, so, you know, you make a lot of good contacts that are just willing to chat with you at the event off record and stuff like that. And the one thing I thought was interesting, I didn't have an agenda about conversations, just, hey, how's it going? Good to see you. You know, what are you, you know, and then we just kind of it would roll into something else. And the one thing I was kind of surprised about was this split between these very, very uh, senior, smart technologists about the optimism, pessimism, and the divide over the advancement of machine learning. Take away the industry as a whole. You know, we're going to write a ton about AI and machine learning. We've already kind of gone down this path about mm -hmm. um, just looking at AI as a whole and, and stuff. I was very surprised about the pessimism over um, what this is going to mean for jobs. You know, so we're not just losing jobs to, you know, China as, um, you know, as politicians would like you to believe that they're not just going, you know, that they're not just being taken by illegal immigration. That it's automation is yeah. what's killing it. And think about what automation has already done. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking about machine learning. Now we're going to talk about cognitive machines. What's that going to mean for the future of just jobs as a whole? Maybe that means, you know, it, there are some that believe that just means that there's there was that one uh, report that was put out by, I want to say Accenture, but some big consultants that said something like 20% of the jobs of the future don't even exist today. <laughs> we don't even know what they are. Right. But, 
they're going to be jobs out there. Yeah. But then you have this kind of end of days thought too that, you know, how are you going to, you know, the, the truck, everybody, I've I heard it's on three separate panels. I don't know if they were just all listing, they all like that and so yeah. they use it later on. But it's a truck driver. If you're a long haul truck driver, you're out of a job in a couple of years, five years, 10 years, whatever it is, that job is going to be automated. Yeah. You might be sitting in the truck as it just drives you and you're just there as a make sure that nothing goes off the rails, but that's about it. Right. Um, so I was just a little bit surprised about that to see some of these uh, people that work in technology are like, no, this is, we're screwed. You know, this is, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, even just like, um, we, we gave away a, an Amazon Echo. We had um, a drawing, you know, you put your mm -hmm. business card at the Waters Technology Desk and uh, we just pulled a name out of, uh, a, of a hat, well, it was a vase or whatever, and that person gets an Amazon Echo. Um, and before we did that, I was having a conversation with somebody about, couldn't pay me to have one of those in my house. Man, it's just a listening device right. for the Big government. Brother. <laughs> Big brother cracking down. 1984, baby. Um, you know, it's, it's, but it's just, it's insane how much these things are weeding into our lives. And we haven't really thought the internet of things, how the encryption on those devices is terrible. Mm -hmm. The security on those devices right, is yeah. terrible. And we're, you know, so this kind of wraps into the cyber end of it too. So not just on machine learning and stuff like that, but I, I think, this I is, think there's nothing specific. I was just surprised about, you know, the divide that, that was there. I think the most interesting thing I had one, uh, spoke, speaking to one tech technologist and he said, you know, what I'm most interested to see is what will be the, um, how much is necessary of human to human, right? What percentage of that is that the robots, you know, the machine learning will just won't be able to understand. Is it 10%? Is it 0.1%? You know, is the future mean we're going to have 10 poets and that's it, you know, and everything else will be machine learning or is it still a substantial percentage where, you know, while it's smaller, there'll be a niche for, you know, because that's, you know, if you want to look at the doom and gloom, that's the thing. Well, if the robots can evolve to where really there's only 0.5% human to human, then you're looking at, okay, this is a very dark future we have yeah. of, you know, them taking over. On uh, the panel, they were talking, you know, some people were talking about, like, you still need, they're, they're on a trading desk, so let's keep it to, to our space, on a trading desk that there will always be, many of the people up there said, you always need a human trader on that desk to understand that yes this event is happening but you know you, there's gonna have to be there's some sort of human insight that just can't exist well there's context too yeah. that's the big thing is that they just don't have context of from what i've heard is that a lot of it they don't have the, the prior experience they have the the data but they don't have the context of understanding this is part of a bigger picture as opposed mm. to this is a solo event that we view separately you yeah. know and you know i i thought that Another very good article um, in the New Yorker, not this most recent one with uh, Donald Trump on the cover, but uh, the previous one that had basically these artificial intelligent machines like on uh, human looking machines. Um, but it looked at um, diagnosticians, uh, oh whatever that word is, you know, people <laughs> that diagnose things mm -hmm. um, and just using algorithm machine learning to better improve diagnoses and, you know, this effort that's being pushed into it. And there's some that's saying, you, it, we should not even be teaching this stuff to, to our younger kids anymore because they're not gonna have a job. Like, so <laughs> if you're in college right now and you wanna be a diagnostician, I'm saying that word completely yeah. wrong. I read in New Yorker, so screw you, I'm smart. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but if you want to do, why, 
because the ones that exist today, well, they're going to eventually be phased out. So why are we going to teach an 18 right. to 22 that's bad all minus, teach them to do something else? Yeah. Um, and then there are others say, well, yes, the it's augmenting human ability. That right. That's what it's going to be. It's like a cell phone augments human ability. I can't scream, you know, that this is the analogy they make in the thing. I can't talk to somebody in San Francisco by just using my plain voice. I need my cell phone to go and augment what I can do as a human. Same thing. There will still be humans involved in this process. The the machine will help to dr- help uh, improve what that human can do. That's the op- optimistic view. The pessimistic view is you're all out of a job. I think we need to take the Dwight Schrute action from the office and make sure all the robots only have six feet of cord to mm-hmm. be plugged in. So if anything goes haywire, we can always just pull them out. Yeah, their reach is only so far. I mean, cords, man. I mean... Just- <laughs> It was an old show, okay? Yeah. Uh, you know, after that doom and gloom and pessimistic view, let's uh, wrap things up now with something fun, something something different and nice, light, which is uh, stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy has been great. Yeah. It's been great recently. Um, if you are a fan, if you have Netflix, which who the hell doesn't have Netflix at this point? Um, they've been, you know, they've just had lineup after lineup of great comedians released, you know, most notably the biggest was probably Dave Chappelle had, is a three part series. Two of them were released oh, about a week or week, two, two ago. Weeks, yeah. Two, something like that. It's within yeah. the last month. Within the last month. Uh, we also had, uh, Bill Burr, Louis CK. Um, Louis CK just came out two days ago. Joe Coy. He's not as big of a comedian, but I know he's been on Chelsea. He also Filipinos had, love him. So. Filipinos do love him. He is hilarious. I've seen him live. Very, very funny. Uh, he also had a, a stand-up go. So, you and know, Chris Rock is a huge deal uh, signed with them. So he's got something he? that's going to become. I think he's got two days signed up for, and for a, I can't remember what it was, but just a ridiculous amount of money yeah. that they're paying him. I I uh, I haven't seen you. Know, I, I've only seen Chappelle's. I haven't seen Louis C.K. or Bill Burr's. But I will say Chappelle's was great. You know, I think we Anthony, you and I talked about this. It was refreshing that really he just doesn't care. And I don't mean that in a bad way. He doesn't yeah. care that he'll say whatever the hell he wants, which I think was that was the beauty of the Chappelle yeah. show is that it crossed the line in so many ways, not just crossed the line racially, but crossed the line gender wise. Just every, he offended everyone. He was an equal which is opportunity not easy to offender. do when you're up on stage doing it because in a in a show where you're playing a character a little bit easier behind a TV screen, yo, know, right? To do it up on stage, there's what I found is, and I mean this as complimentary again i'm of the belief that comedy there are there you can there every line should be crossed just a matter of how well you do it some people do a terrible you know terrible job of making a joke you know that's Mm going to happen um but i found that he he had a callousness about him and i don't care um that he's there's always been that underlying but it really kind of it reminded me a little bit of ricky gervais and michael che you know this kind of just like yeah i'm bigger i'm better than you you know right. or is that before he's kind of relatable i'm you know just weed smoking you know having fun out here there was so much of i am free i i know i'm a legend and he just went up there and just did not care yeah in those two i stories. mean his place is cemented in history he, he he doesn't need to prove anything to anybody he had to, i think know. a lot of people hate if you like some of his early ones and you just haven't been following him or you just kind of know him from the show a lot of people are going to hate some of the jokes in there. They're, he goes down some dark lines. He, um, you know, his Cosby joke, he has in both specials, he goes and in on uh, Cosby. And there are some people that just, if you are offended easily by stand-up comedy, he this, this show will not be for you. Well, I think the same people that probably, like, 
if you didn't like Chappelle's show or if you were offended by Chappelle's show, then you're going to be offended by this and mm-hmm. you're not going to like this. This um, one has a little bit more of an even uh, – this one, again, there's that callousness to but it. I think it's not there's, just looking I think, for a laugh. And maybe I'm wrong. I think there's a bit of a rose-colored tint on the Chappelle show because it was so long ago. Like, can you imagine some of the skits they did in Chappelle's show? If they tried to air them in today's day and age, they would never – I feel like they would never get off the ground because so many people would be up in arms about them. Yeah, I mean, uh, Keem Peel did a lot of – you know, he makes that joke that I've been watching – Keem Peele. I mean, uh, he does a sketch about a white, black, uh, a black, white supremacist supremacist. that's blind. Well, that was the first episode. That was the first episode. episode, That was the first episode. You know, he did a a sketch about a family that their family name was a derogatory term for an African-American person. Definitely won't say it on this podcast. Stuff like that is not, would not go over well, I think, in today's, I think there are a lot more people that would kind of throw their hands and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're right. Keem Peele, you know, he makes a joke about Keem Peele. Keem Peele would, uh. You know, they There's, push the line as well. come off but, a little bit more tame than, yeah. you know, they would have a couple jokes here and there that, you know, would take the knife out. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's different than his previous ones, the Killing Me Softly and sure. stuff like that. But um, it's great to have him back and, you know, on on just as to have a special out like that. And uh, I was a big fan, but there are going to be a lot of people that in today's day and age that, yeah, let's just put this disclaimer out. Anthony and I are not endorsing everything that Dave Chappelle says in his uh, in his yeah. stand up. Yeah, don't, don't, um, it's, it's great comedy, but it's it's you know some of it's t- funny. Some, some of, of it is uh, some of it's, yeah. it's supposed to make you go, oh god, yeah, and, cringe a little bit. Yeah, and or Bill Burr's was fantastic in that regard too. But his his I think Bill Burr is you know he's also a legend. He just doesn't have the TV shows and stuff like that to kind of get the credit for that he should. But as just a comedian, God, that guy is funny. I can't. I'm uh, his podcast is weird. It's just him talking. It's like when you just do the podcast. Like, ugh, God, this yeah, sounds what terrible. a creep. Guy yeah, talking exactly. about financial technology. At least Bill Burr's funny. Dan's just saying weird stuff. About <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I guess that's it. I don't know any any other standups that you want to talk about. Uh, Ali Wong, Baby Cobra is one of the best I've seen in a long time. Um, she pregnant during that? She was pregnant during that one, and um, uh, I've seen so, I've seen her uh, live uh, a couple times, and she's just. I, I didn't know who she was. My girlfriend wanted to see her, and um, I watched it. And I, I've watched that uh, stand-up numerous times now, and it's just absolutely hysterical. She's got a new one coming out, um, so that one's great. Uh, Michael Che has a new one uh, out that's – Michael Che Matters, right? Or yeah, is... Michael Che Matters, yeah. yeah. Um, and I've seen him live a couple times. He's pretty great. Um and then if you're an Amy Schumer fan, she's got a new one out. I mean, I, that's, I guess, the interesting thing now. Amy Schumer steals jokes. <laughs> um, HBO, when Allegedly. we when we, uh, when we were growing up, HBO was, and all these guys that we mentioned, you know, Chris Rock, you know, Dave Spell, stuff like that, they were all on those TVs. Well, Netflix seems to kind of be taken. Well, way. so that's, that, I guess that's the difference in our age. Because for me, it was always Comedy Central. It was Friday night stand-up, Comedy mm-hmm. Central. You put the TV on, Comedy Central Friday well, that's night. That's why I saw Michael Che the first time. He had a great one. He had a great it used to be. They used there. to have the half-hour sets, and they'd have their own background. Remember, it was I think yep. it was in, like, the same place. I don't know where they did it. Yeah. But they'd, there'd always be, like, two new ones on Fridays. They still and then, have that kind of stuff. They, but it's still great, yo. But right. Yeah, it, it, Netflix is really making a power play here. Just... The elite, once you, that was supposed to be the whole thing. You'd kind of work your way up through the Comedy Central shows, stuff like that. And then you'd get your HBO show or you'd right. do like your 30 minute HBO show, but then you'd get the big, you know, hour long yeah. one. 
Um, it's funny that now, I, I don't know if HBO is just out of the game now, but uh, that Netflix just dominates the space now. Yeah, and I think just for a sheer comedian, eyeballs-wise, more people have Netflix than HBO. So yeah. you're going to get more people watching you if you know if you go on Nef- the Netflix route. That's so, right. yeah, I guess that's it. Um, so, Anthony, you got anything else? I don't think so, no. So thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, be sure to come back next Thursday. Thank you.